Welcome to the Knox Podcast, featuring a sermon from the Knox Evangelical Presbyterian Church in Kenmore, New York. For more information about Knox Church, visit our website at knoxepc.com or email us at office at knoxepc.com. To request prayer, send an email to pastor at knoxepc.com. Let's open our Bibles today as we continue to study the book of Exodus. We'll be going to Exodus chapter 32. Exodus chapter 32 and the first 10 verses. As we receive God's holy word, let us rise. The first 10 verses. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, this man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives and your sons and your daughters and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears, and they brought them to Aaron, and he received the gold from their hand, and fashioned it with a graving tool, and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day, and they offered burnt offerings And they brought peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people, whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way I have commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf, and they have worshipped it and sacrificed to it, and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt." And Moses, I'm sorry, and the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation of you. May God bless this reading, this hard reading of his word today. Please have a seat. A month or so ago, my family went on a road trip to Pennsylvania. We visited many different places, Hershey, uh, Scranton, the coal mines there. I found out I have coal mining uh, relatives I never knew about. We went to Gettysburg. We probably spent more time on the road than at the actual places we visited. And I'll tell you, when you're going through the back roads of any state, but Pennsylvania in particular, it's a very frustrating experience because the, the speed limit keeps changing on you. And you get really used to like, you know, you have these long ways where it's like 55 miles an hour, and you're just cruising, and it's farmland and Amish buggies as far as I can see. And then suddenly what happens? You hit a small town. It's like speed limit 30, and you have to hit the brake, and it feels like you're just walking through the town until you get to that 55 again and can start going fast. And uh, it's, it's a little frustrating. It's a little frustrating to make that, that downshift. And then sometimes I think, I was thinking of that when I'm going through the book of Exodus. Because I think for many people, we experience that frustration. 
We start in the book of Exodus, and what is it? It's all story. It's a lot of story. It's a lot of action. We got Moses being rescued from the Nile, and he grows up and he kills the Egyptian, goes to be a shepherd, comes back, let my people go. You got the plagues, you got the great Exodus, the Passover, parting of the Red Sea. There's a war in there that we didn't even have time to cover. Uh, and then they got to the, the foot of the mountain. And so all this action, all this story, we're swept up in it. And then chapter 20 comes along like a speed sign saying, slow down. And suddenly, we get chapter after chapter after chapter that instead of story, is law and instruction. And for some people reading through the book of Exodus, it, it, it's like a, it's jarring to make that transition, that downshift into this instruction that we have. And so we're, we're kind of begging the, the Bible. We're going, okay, I know God's Word is good, but I miss that story. I want to get back to the story. God, can we get back to the story already? Well, you know what they say? Be careful what you wish for. Because when we get back to the story, it is the story we don't want. It is the most depressing, dark day for Israel that almost ever existed. It is a seriously black mark upon the people of Israel. We wouldn't want to see this. We wouldn't want to read this chapter and see rebellion and death and the anger of a holy God. We'd want to see something that would pick up on this excitement of the tabernacle and the law and the mission ahead of them. And instead, it seems like they're almost tanking it before it begins. What happens here in chapter, 20, uh, in chapter 32 is quite simply the story of sin. And we know that story so well. We know the pattern of this. It's a really powerful example to us of the danger and consequences that come about because of our sin, whether or not we think they're meaningful or big or small. I want us to look at that and see that this isn't just a story of Israel and their big whoopsie back then. This is a story of us, our story of sin. So as we head into this passage, I think it's important to get the context, kind of to re-understand how God's been delivering all this information. So God came down, we remember, to the foot of the mountain to give the people personally the Ten Commandments, to tell them in person, these are your Ten Commandments. But then God went up to the top of the mountain, and Moses went all the way up with Joshua. And at the top of the mountain, Moses received all the other instructions, the tabernacle that we're talking about, the priesthood, all these other things that God had in place. So Moses has been up there for a little over a month now. I don't know if he got Uber, if they come up and they give him like DoorDash. God's giving him food graciously. But he's been up there a long time. And if you've ever had a wait, you know you sometimes get impatient and restless and you're waiting for somebody to come out of an appointment because you've got to drive him home or something. Imagine waiting a month. You start, you know, like a week or so, you're fine with it. But after a month, you start really getting impatient and restless. That's what's happening with the people. And as they're getting more and more impatient, they start asking questions. What's going on? Where's this Moses? Have you heard anything today? Has he come back down? I wonder if he's dead. Maybe he died up there. Like, what do we do? If the guy died, do we stay around here forever? What are we waiting for here? Why are we continuing to wait? Let's get this going. We're tired of waiting. It's kind of like me driving. We're tired of going slow. Let's get going again. And as we've seen before with Israel, what is its main trait? 
grumbling and complaining. They're so quick to go back to this well. And so here they're once again devolving into grumbling. Where is this? This Moses, they call him. Not Moses, not our leader. This Moses, like they don't even know who he is anymore. Where is this guy? Bad attitudes start spreading out throughout the whole uh, nation. Now understand, just a month ago, these people, as with one voice, stood before God, and God said, do you want to form a covenant with me? Do you want me to be your God, and you be my people? And here are the terms of this covenant. And with one voice, the people said, yes, we do. Now, one month later, they have lost trust and faith in God. It took about that long, because they're being asked to wait. How often does God ask us to wait? How often? And how often do we start losing trust in God because we have to wait? Instead, our faith should be built up. Our trust should be growing even more. God is giving you an opportunity to trust Him instead of losing faith. Well, the story of sin always, brothers and sisters, always begins with the rejection of God. Always begins in this moment when we think, well, God's good in all that. He's done some nice work in the past but I think I can do better now. I think I can do better now. God tells you not to eat the fruit of the tree or you'll surely die. Well, he didn't really mean that, did he? Nom, nom, nom. Take a big old bite out of there. The Lord says, let my people go. I'm going to crack down on those people even harder. You hear on church on Sunday, we shouldn't gossip. We shouldn't sleep around. We shouldn't be puffed up in pride. Come Monday... You're talking about people behind their back. You're sleeping with your girlfriend at her apartment. And uh, you're the biggest narcissist that Instagram and Facebook has ever seen. Right? That's the pattern of sin. That's the story of sin. It's us starting by saying, God is okay, but I think I can do things better. And that's what we're seeing here. We reject God because we think we know better. And we certainly do not. And that makes us just as foolish as the Israelites. Look at them here. They're like kids. They start mobbing Aaron. They start peer pressuring the, the spiritual leadership of Israel. Now, Aaron fails in this moment. But let's understand that he comes under a lot of scrutiny, a lot of criticism. And I think anybody who's been in any sort of ministry in the church understands that. When people start grumbling and complaining and mobbing you, the pressure you feel under to do whatever it takes to make them happy. And Aaron here, it's one of his first roles as a high priest, bows. The people say to him, we're tired of this waiting, Aaron. Make us a new God. Make us a new God that will go before us. Somebody we can see. And Aaron gives in to peer pressure, takes their gold, and he helps them break the first two commandments right off the bat. He creates a golden cow to worship. Now, if this wasn't so serious, this image of people bowing down to a gold cow would almost be completely laughable. Completely laughable. God's already shown them how great He is to save, right? How many miracles have they seen with their own eyes? How much fierce judgment have they seen upon Egypt that God brought down upon them? God has been faithful every step of the way to His promise. He's been generous to provide the manna and the quail every day. And yet they turn around because they can't stand the waiting. And they say, well, God's good in all that, but I want to make a metal clarabelle 
Now I want to worship in front of her instead. Because at least I can see that. At least that's here right now. At least that's something that I think is okay. You'll notice not just a couple people doing this, by the way. It's the whole community. And what does that whole community do? How do they participate in the creation of this cow? Why? They take off the gold, the earrings, the jewelry. Where did they get that, by the way? We looked at that. They didn't have that when they were slaves. Slaves didn't have gold and jewelry. They got that on the way out of Egypt. When God told the people of Egypt, He moved in their hearts to, so that the Egyptians would give the people of God their gold and jewelry and finery as a gift, as a payment. And so they've been blessed by God with all this gold. And what do they do? They turn around, take that same gold, and they fashion it pretty much into a rude gesture to the heavens. They take a gift of God and they blaspheme God with it. It's obscenely ridiculous that they bow down and look at verse 4. They're saying, as they're worshiping this thing, they say, right here is your God, O Israel. Right here is your God. This God brought you up out of the land of Egypt. This cow we created today did that. Brought you out of the land of Egypt. It's ridiculous, but I think it, it also makes us pause and we look at our own life and we look at how ridiculous we've been in our story of sin. The things we've taken that are shallow and insignificant, and we've elevated them to the position of worship. We've danced around something that is unfulfilling, but we've worshipped it. We've made it the center of our lives. How often have we done that? Instead of a metal cow, how often have we danced around things like politics, money, celebrity, fame, jobs, relationships, achievements, saying, look how great this is. Look how fulfilling it is. Look how wonderful it is. And we push God out of the picture. Israel's story of sin created a toothless God that couldn't even moo on command. I, I know cows. Cows are good at mooing. They couldn't even take a cow and say, here you go. They had to create a fake one. R.C. Sproul had a great quote on this. I want to read to you. He said, this cow gave no law, demanded no obedience. It had no wrath, nor justice, nor holiness to be feared. It was deaf, dumb, and impotent. But you know what? It didn't get in the way of them having a good time. It didn't call them to justice. It didn't call them to do the right thing. This right here was religion designed by men, practiced by men, and ultimately useless for men. And we can look back and we can scorn Israel and we can say from our vantage point how foolish they were. But can we really say if we weren't there in the heat of the moment that we might not be taking off our rings too and partying just as hard as everybody else? No matter what kind of sin we fall into, the first chapter of that story of sin, always the same. God asks us to trust, but we don't because we think we know better. Israel thought we knew better. We do too. God asks us to wait upon Him, but we get impatient. God asks us to be faithful, but something else catches our eye. God promises a glorious future of His own design, but we'd rather sacrifice that for something temporary and immediate. Everybody's gone through this story in our lives more than once, and it's never ending in a good place unless God intervenes. Well, speaking of that intervention, 
Now the, the shift of this account goes from what's happening down at the base of the mountain to the top. What's happening up there? God is watching with dismay as the chaos of this camp, as it's devolving into pagan worship. And so he says to Moses, Moses, you've got to go down right now. This is spiraling out of control. In a matter of days, maybe even hours, the nation of Israel has backslidden all the way to this pagan worship that's exactly the same kind that Egypt did. This should ring bells. Like Egypt would worship a cow. Egypt would have no problem erecting a statue of a cow. Now Israel, which has grown up alongside Egypt, said, we want to be like them again. In fact, God in verse 8 said, this is happening quickly. It's happening rapidly. Sometimes things happen so fast. Do you guys remember the Northeast blackout of 2003? I remember that. Three wonderfully hot days that we had. And I, I watched a little documentary on it not too long ago. It's explaining the engineering failure behind that. Why did so many people, so many states, and most Ontario, go dark all of a sudden? And it started at 4.10 in the afternoon around Cleveland. All bad things come from Cleveland. So we shouldn't be surprised there. But a number of, number of different systems all cascaded. They all failed about the same time. Backups and all this, these things didn't happen as they should have. And it turned out it took less than a half an hour for all these systems to start crashing to the point where 55 million people were now in the dark. A half an hour. That's how fast that happened. So we shouldn't be surprised when things go bad. They can go bad quickly. When we fall into sin... Sin tempts us and says, it's not a big deal. You can sin a little bit now because you can always stop. The consequence is way far down the road. You might as well have your fun now. And sin, meanwhile, is giggling behind his hands going, it's going to happen bad and it's going to happen fast. And they're not going to be able to stop it. And that's what happens here. Before they knew it, it crashed down in the lives of the Egyptians. And it brought, oh, I'm sorry, the Israelites, and brought them to the brink of complete disaster. That their sin brought them to near disaster. Because they broke the covenant. Remember, this covenant that had blessings and curses. If they honored the covenant, if they followed the Ten Commandments, God would bless them. God would be their God. He would, they would be His people. He would bless them forever after. But if they broke it, they came under the clause of curses. They came under a death penalty for breaking the covenant. That's how serious this is. And as the camp spirals out of control, verses 9 and 10 here, we see that God says they're within a hair's breadth of the Almighty, essentially bringing down a nuclear strike upon that camp. He's willing. He's ready. He's going to evaporate, bring them all the atoms, and just blast them to smithereens for what they've just done. Sin is never casual. I think we had a quote on the board a, a week or two ago that said there's no such thing as a little sin because there's no such thing as a little God. A little rebellion against God is a great thing. And they have been rebelling in a huge way. So we see them on the brink of eternal disaster. That these people are about ready to be killed, not just in this life, but forever after. And now, the story gets really interesting. 
I think this is the part where we skip over. We don't see what's happening here. But verse 10 of this chapter is the most crucial verse of this story. And I want us to pause here and look at it. Because something really fascinating happens. God says here, now leave me alone. Or or the translation might be, let me alone. He's talking to Moses. Leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them. Let's pause and understand how weird this is. God is saying to Moses, I'm really angry at these people. They have blasphemed against me. They have broken the law to make me their God and construct no graven images. Now leave me alone so that I can go down and bring hellfire and brimstone and destruction upon their head. Why is God saying this? Why does God even need to say this? Here's a few things. Either God's a really weak God, and, and God's like, out of the way, Moses, I'm trying to get around you. Really would like to go down there and kill them all right now. And Moses somehow has the ability to stop God. Probably not the case. Or my mental image would be Moses as a little kid wrapping himself around the leg of God. And God's like, Moses, I want to get down there. Now leave me alone so I can go down. And I hope you understand that's ridiculous too. So why is God saying this? Why does God say, Moses, leave me alone so that I can go down? Moses has no ability, no power to stop God in his judgment. What he's saying here is this. Moses, I'm prepared in this moment to bring absolute, complete destruction upon these people. In fact, when I do that, Moses, I'll make you and your family into a new nation. I'm going to start over. It's going to be the flood all over again. I'm going to start over and we'll make a nation out of you. How tempting would that be? But what he's saying, God says this, I will do this if you, the mediator of the people, give me the word. I, as the Almighty Father, am ceding this decision to you. I'm letting you as mediator have this opportunity to make intercession for the people. What's your choice, Moses? How tempting in that moment. That Moses could have had every... Like he, his family could have been the new nation. And he's probably thinking back, how many times have these people grumbled against me, called me names, wrote that thing above the urinal in the men's bathroom that was really... Uh, I, don't, like, I don't need the headache of these people. How tempting would that be? But God says, I am giving you, the mediator, the ability to make this decision. We pause to note that the Father in Heaven has every right to wipe out this nation. But He also has every right to decide, I am giving the choice to another. Psalm says in 106 that in this moment, Moses, who the text calls God's chosen one, stood in the breach. And in this moment, Moses lifted up his hands and he gives one of the most heartfelt prayers on behalf of the people. God, forgive them. God, remember your promise. God, remember how graceful and compassionate you are. He makes intercession. He stands in the breach for a sinful people. And if that's not ringing bells already, I don't know what should. Because this is exactly what happens in the New Testament. The Father 
stores up wrath against the sinful people who have broken their covenant with Him, who have sinned against Him, who have rebelled against Him. And the Father is ready to pour out that wrath upon the people. But the Father says to the Mediator, to the Son, I am ceding this decision to you. You can decide to either intercede for these people or to step aside and let my wrath go. And in that moment, the Son steps up into the breach and He prays for the people. And He takes the wrath upon Himself instead. Moses is a type of Christ and that points forward to the work of Christ. And praise God that the Son did that. Because if Jesus did not intercede for us in that moment, we would be as guilty and we would be as subject to the death penalty as Israel was. And we would be suffering that forever. Jesus, the Chosen One, stood in the breach for you. And that's why verse 10 is so important. However, unfortunately there has to be a however, even with the intercession of Moses, there's still the people aren't off the hook. Things aren't right down there at the foot of the mountain. You'll note in the text that even when Moses comes down, confronts the people with their sin, they don't repent. The people don't go, oh my goodness, Moses is alive. Oh my goodness, what did we do? We better get down on our knees. We better say sorry. We better turn back to God. They do none of that. In fact, the text tells us Aaron is trying to deflect blame. One of the funniest verses in the Old Testament. He says, what, what happened? Um, we just threw gold into a fire and out came this cow. Don't know how that happened, but it happened. That's, what he, that's literally his excuse. So Aaron is deflecting blame. The people aren't accepting any of the blame. There's no repentance. And Moses comes down, and there's this palpable sense that if things keep going on as they are, that the camp is just going to fracture into utter chaos, utter anarchy. That they're just all going to dissolve to the wind, that they're going to form their own cults and tribes and keep worshiping cows until the cow comes home. Right? So when we don't turn back to God, when, when we're confronted with our sin, consequences just get worse and worse. We need to stop early on in our sin because we know we can be forgiven, but there's always consequences. And we always look at those and go, man, I just wish I didn't do that. The story of sin often creates lingering wounds that continue on in our life. So the people here, we see several examples of how they're now reaping the whirlwind how they're now getting these consequences. The first thing that happens is Moses comes down to the foot of the mountain, sees what's happening in the camp, takes the two tablets that God himself carved and smashes them. Some people read this text and says, well, Moses just had a, a hissy fit in this moment. He didn't have a hissy fit. What's he doing? Showing the people what they just did. They broke the law. They broke the covenant. They no longer have this. This broken it's gone. He shatters the, the law in front of their eyes. Then he goes up and takes this cow, grinds it down into a powder, hands it in a drink to everybody. Worst Kool-Aid ever. Makes them drink it all down until the dregs, tasting the bitter metallic taste of their blasphemy, of this former gift that God had given to them. And now they fashion it into a cow. And that's not enough. Because there are still the ringleaders. And there's this moment where Moses calls out to the people and says, who's with me? 
Who's still on the side of God? Guess who are the only people who show up for that? The Levites. God's, God's priestly tribe. They're the only people of all the 12 tribes that flock to Moses. And Moses says, if we don't do something, this is going to get completely out of control. Take up your swords. Go find the ringleaders and put an end to them. 3,000 people were killed that day. Rightly so. They were the instigators. They were the people leading the people of Israel into rebellion against God. What a dark day this is. We may wince, we may go, how horrible that is. Imagine, that's like a 9-11 right there with swords. But this is right judgment to be brought upon the people. In fact, right judgment would be them all being killed. But instead, just the ringleaders in this moment so that chaos could be brought under control. That order could be restored. And even in that moment, atonement is still not being made. The people are still not repenting. Rebellion still lurks in their hearts. Get that sense like if things go wrong tomorrow, rebellion can start right back up again. And so we hear, here we end. Here we end this passage. And it's on a dark note. It's on a depressing note. We can't look at it and go, wow, there's hope there. Even though Moses made intercession for the people, they're still in a dark place. And it gets even darker next week because we're going to look that God tells the people, I'm no longer going with you. I'm no longer going to be your God. You broke my covenant. You broke this agreement. You chose your God. You just drank him down. You guys go ahead. Go to, go to Israel. In fact, you know what? I'll clear the place out for you. I'll still send an angel in front of you. Won't be me, but I'll send an angel. I'll send an angel in front of you. I'll clear out the nation. And you can have that land, but it won't be with me. I won't be in the tabernacle. I won't be in the temple. You will not have me in the middle of your worship. And that's how we end this passage. That's the consequence of their sin. So we read this story. We remember back to the flannel graph of Sunday schools of our youth. And we go, well, that was kind of cute and silly, but things got okay right after. They did not get okay right after. They were in as dark a place as Israel has ever gotten. It's an awful place to end a sermon. Now I'm sending you out on this. So let me say this. Let me just add one little more note. I think we could salvage something useful here. 1 Corinthians 10.6 has an important verse for us because Paul notes, he actually quotes this story of the golden calf. He says, you know what? He says this. Now these things took place as examples for us so that we might not desire evil the way that they did. Why did Israel go through this dark day? Well, their own sin, their own choices, their own anarchy. But remember how God always takes something bad and uses it for His glory? He's taking this story and using it in our lives right now that it may serve as an example so that the next time we're tempted to sin, the next time we think it's not a big deal, the next time we think, well, God's okay, but I can do better, next time we think, well, a little bit at a time is fine, but the consequences are down the road, we might remember this story and it may be an example to us. So we look at the darkness of what the Israelites brought upon them. The death, the destruction, the broken law. God abandoning His fellowship with the people. And we might start to see our sin as it is. As this foul, malignant, 
despicable, abhorrent force in our lives that we don't want anymore, that we don't want to go down this, this path of the story of sin. We know the, that path. We know the chapters of that book so well. We want something else. We want to go down a new path. And it's only made possible because it's been interrupted by the Son standing in the breach and saying, I am taking your sins upon me. Now, what does Jesus always say when He heals people? Go and sin no more. Stop walking down that path. Stop going into that story. Go into me instead. My story is better. My story has a future. My story has hope. My story will not make you wake up the next day and regret what you just did. My story will put a smile on your heart. My story is forever. That's the story we should want. That's why God gives us this as an example to show us what we should not want and what we should crave in our lives. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, as we come to you today, may we not be arrogant and think that we're better than the Israelites. That we somehow sin less. That we have not rebelled. Lord, we have. We know it. Lord, help us not to sin. Help us to break the patterns that are in each one of our lives. The grasp that sin has on us. We each have those temptations that are stronger for us than they might be for other people. But we each have them. And Lord, open our eyes to the sins we have in our life that we don't even see because we're so used to. Lord, those, those social sins, the way we interact with other people, the sexual sins that we think are private because nobody else sees them, the way we sin against You, Lord. Take Your name in vain. Worship other things above You. Lord, help us to see our sin. Help us to repent, to turn aside. And time and again, if and when we fall, to fall upon Your mercy, fall upon Your grace, fall upon Your forgiveness. And Lord, ask You, help me. Help me to turn aside. Help us not to become complacent, Lord. But help us to become a people who want You, who desire You in Your ways above all else. In Your name, Amen. To reach out to Pastor Justin, email him at pastor at knoxepc.com. Our mailing address is Knox Church, 2595 Elmwood Avenue, Kenmore, New York, 14217. Join us for worship Sundays at 10.30 a.m. either at Knox Church or on our live stream at facebook.com forward slash KnoxEPC. Past sermons can be found at KnoxEPC.com forward slash sermons. Thank you for listening.